just the scale of the activity, the expansion, the development, the energy, the fact that Saudi Arabia truly is rocking so many sectors of international trade, sports, politics, energy. I just can't even begin to put into words the colossal change that I've been able to see in these 30 years. It's really, really hard for anybody who's not experienced that to understand how it's gone from a place that was really very important from an Islamic standpoint, but so unknown to most of the planet. And here we are with the podcast, the most listened to in the English language, beginning with the area code that was once dialing in to speak to me. Marvelous. This is the 966. This is the 966 episode 94. Mr. Richard Wilson, hello. Hey, how, how are you, you doing? <laughs> how you doing? It's I'm all running well, on. Thanks. Each one, each one is distinct and fun and everything. But boy, it's nice when they stack up. So here we go, ninety-four. Ninety-four on July fourteenth. This will air, Richard. We are. Right. This is really bizarre, but we are now in the second half of twenty twenty-three, which is kind of hard to wrap one's head around. It's like that already midsummer. It's crazy. Wow. Yeah. Yes, agreed. And Richard, we have a good one for this week, too. We will be speaking soon with British-American Dr. Kanta Ahmed uh, from NYU Langone. And Dr. Kanta wrote a book about her experiences working as a doctor in Saudi Arabia in 2008 and has since traveled there many times since the launch of Vision 2030, seen some of the reforms firsthand for women. Uh, Just going to be a really cool conversation, Richard. Looking forward to this one. Agreed. She first went there in 1999, so she has a essentially been done doing a longitudinal study of Saudi Arabia and, um, you know, has some real thoughts and perspective on what's, you know, what it was like then, what's it become now. And it'll be fun. It'll really be really fun to talk with her. It's going to be great. Richard, we'll also be talking a little bit more about Saudi women and their progress recently and over the last few years. And we will touch on Saudi Arabia's Expo 2030 bid a lot more as well as always in Yella and Richard, just always like to start off with a reminder to uh, listeners who haven't subscribed yet to please subscribe on wherever. I mean, I don't even, we've said this a million times, but there are now so many places to get the 966. Uh, I think like 29 podcasting platforms, YouTube. You can follow us on LinkedIn now. We're going to start putting up shorter segments there and and sort of tease some content on LinkedIn because we get a lot of feedback there anyway. So kind of makes sense to... uh, to go where the crowd is. Richard got this piece of feedback on YouTube from at Albendari College 4280 five days ago. Um, proud of you, Dana. She was uh, referring obviously to um, our conversation last week. Just received the video. Thanks to your hosts too. I subscribed to their channel. You did very well. Cool. Thank you. That's <laughs> <laughs> it all wrapped in compliments plus a subscription. We can't ask for anything more. Yeah, that's that was a good one. I like that one that that had both a compliment and an action, which is uh, which is great. So thank you, um, Richard. Shall we? Shall we? We shall. What's your uh, one big thing one this big week? Thing. Um, as we know, Saudi Arabia is uh, you know stepping full forward into convening and all sorts of sports events. And I, I we did a segment previously on just, I think it was a month of February, the number of international exhibits and meetings and, and that sort of thing that are being, were being held in Riyadh. But anyway, a big one is Saudi Arabia's bid 
to host the 2030 Expo, World Expo, but it is Expo 2030. So competition is heating up uh, for the right to host the 2030 Expo, World Expo, which is a massive event, as we know. Uh, I mean, and if everything goes well, it can generate significant revenue, jobs, global attention. It's uh, It'd be a real coup to get it. So late last month in June, uh, the three competing cities, which are Rome, Riyadh, and South Korea's second biggest city, Busan, presented their bids at a key meeting of the Paris-based Bureau International des Expositions, uh, BIE. Uh, the heads of state for all three countries, Italy, South Korea, and Saudi Arabia, were all in France to support their country's bid. Mohammed bin Salman spent a week there. I think he was doing other things, but he was there to support this bid. Uh, it should be noted that Odessa in Ukraine submitted a bid for this 2030 Expo prior to Russia's invasion last year. I think they'd like to get it, but they were, their bid was not part of the official presentation. It's unlikely to be successful. Anyway, the vote will be taken later this year in November at the 173rd General Assembly of the BIE. Each of the 179 members will have one secret ballot each. So um, you know, let the lobbying begin. This is a, a you know, again, it'll become a very political and, um, uh, you know, hotly contested affair, I'm sure. Uh, Saudi Arabia has allocated $7.8 worth of investments for Expo 2030. And the theme, if they should win it, is, quote, the era of change together for a foresighted tomorrow, unquote. Uh, you'll be interested in this solution. The actual proposed Expo site would be near the under construction King Salman International Airport, so north of the city. Uh, visitors would uh, access the exhibition site through the Riyadh Metro, obviously. And and we've we've carried a couple of these in the Sustig Review this week. So there's a mock-up of the expo as, you know, sort of a you know, what it would look like. And it features 226 show pavilions in a circular shape. Uh, participating countries would be selected flexibly based on their longitude. So the countries from the north and the south would be mixed together. This is a symbolized Saudi Arabia's efforts to enable global co collaboration. So, again, I talked about the campaigning that's involved with this, and it's global. Saudi Arabia, I'm not sure what Italy or South Korea are doing. I'm sure they'll be doing their own, you know, their own campaign. Saudi Arabia will allocate $343 million as part of its program to assist 100 countries participating in the Expo 2030. A financial package will be for assistance in areas such as pavilion construction, maintenance, technology, support, travel, and holding events. Uh, interesting. That's an interesting uh, incentive. You know, you know, vote for us, and we'll uh, we'll help pay for your pavilion. Um, the next World Expo is in 2025. It'll be held in Osaka, Japan. They are anticipating 28 million visitors, 150 countries, and 25 organizations are taking part. You can see if you're getting 28 million visitors, and we saw over 20 million visitors to um, Doha last year, uh, why it's so attractive. So what are the odds for Saudi Arabia? I don't know. Um, the, the last six, if you include Japan, so all right, so 2000 was Germany. 2005, Japan, 2010, China, 2015, Italy, Milan, uh, 2020, uh, UAE, Dubai, 2025, Japan, Osaka. So, you know, I don't know how much weight they put in cycling it, but I'm guessing they don't like to do back to back, although they have done it. So you've had Italy in 2015, uh, the Middle East in 2020, you'll have Asia 
2025. So, you know, where does it go in 20, 2030? I mean, you can go to the Middle East, back to Saudi Arabia. Does it go back to Asia, back to back, North Korea? Uh, does it go to Rome, Italy, who had it in 2015? And Italy, by the way, has hosted a number of World Expos. Anyway, the race is on. It's a big deal. Uh, we'll keep tabs on it. Should it come to pass, should Saudi Arabia, um, you know, win the bid? You know, that's yet another sort of uh, uh, a target date to look forward to and another goal in terms of building out Saudi Arabia's infrastructure and, and all the things that we part of doing a world expo, you know, and, you know, you know, and Saudi Arabia would want to do it first rate. So it would be, a, it would be another fascinating aspect of their global coming out as it were. Yeah. Richard, great pronunciation there on BIE. <laughs> now you see what I deal with as a guy with a French first name all the time <laughs> and uh, the preference for the anglicized version of it. Richard, really good. I mean, they have been working on this for a long time. You you mentioned they um, they hosted the G20, which was a, during a pandemic year, a bit of a diff disappointment for them because they really wanted it to be a bit of a showcase of a changing Riyadh. I thought it was interesting, too, and you mentioned a little bit about the investment that they are putting into it and they're, they plan to put into it. Um, Khaled Al-Fala said in, in France, when effectively the entire Saudi government was in France for this big pitch, um, that they would invest $7.8 billion in the expo, as you said. So they're willing to put up big money. I thought that that was a lot of money. But uh, in fact, Rome's bid is the most expensive. It's $10 billion uh euros or 10.9 billion dollars that they're putting forward to host the expo 2030 if they win it and as you mentioned richard uh they milan just had it so they're hoping to have sort of the renaissance that milan has had since uh it hosted it in 2015 milan you know had a big turnaround and now is considered increasingly more and more cosmos cosmopolitan as a city in, in other words the the expo is a huge boom for whoever gets to host it. And so, you know, the, these cities are, it's, it's strange because they, they compete, they're putting themselves forward and marketing themselves as the best destination. They're also kind of competing with each other. And in any competition, there's going to be, well, you know, uh, Italy already had it and they had it not that long ago. So you're really going to give it to Rome and, and after Milan had it. So this is interesting. Like the, the pursuit of it is interesting. And then if it comes to Riyadh, Riyadh's story is we've had Vision 2030 on the books since 2016. We're actually going to talk about that in a little bit. But um, I mean, what a story that would be. Our, our The year of our big plan maturing 2030 would be when we host the expo. Like that's a really cool story for Saudi Arabia. I, I, I'm rooting for them. Rome is my favorite city on the planet, but I'm still rooting for Riyadh because of the 966 <laughs> podcast. But And it'd be amazing to go to. But yeah. So uh, did you mention, Richard, when this decision gets handed down? Because I know the final round of bidding was uh, or the you know sales pitching, I guess it was the BIE was a few weeks ago. Yeah, this November. This November. OK, cool. Yeah. So we'll, we will be keeping tabs on it. Well, maybe we'll do a little celebratory episode if they get it. But Richard, it's also very cool. And I'm glad you noted that it will be near that new airport. So they're going to have some overlap on the infrastructure development there. Well, and, uh, you know, the Royal Commission for Riyadh City is, you know, working on an expansion plan. I mean, the, the, it, it, it's sort of hand in glove with an expansion that's ongoing anyway. It's also interesting because they are thinking or they may have put their hat in for the FIFA World, the World Cup, FIFA World Cup in 2030. I think that's probably been moved to 2034 because um, that just might be too much. But 
um, yeah, so Saudi Arabia is putting their hat in a lot of different rings. This would be a big win. Yeah, this would be a big one. It would be a longer sort of maybe not as much as a, of a media impact would be a longer benefit. These things last months. So, I mean, the World yeah, Cup's only a few weeks long. So it'd, it'd be from October to March if they did it in in um, in Saudi, in Riyadh, obviously over the winter months. Yeah. Well, they also have Riyadh season. So if they're in their uh, 12th or 13th Riyadh season for, for that would be quite the mashup. Um, they may set it all aside for this. You know, that'd be a big thing. But it's it's kind of fun. I mean, and, and, and you know, you were diplomatic in saying they might, you know, be competing against each other. I think it's hardcore. I think they're going to be, you know, trying to really sway, you know, key countries. Maybe the EU all goes with... Uh, with you know rome you know maybe the asia all goes with north korea where does africa go mm -hmm. they all have a vote it's one vote so i mean there'll be a lot of politicking out there where's the u.s and south america go yeah probably one of the best books that i've read richard devil in the white city about that the world's fair in chicago and the, the murder <laughs> and it just, just shows exactly. you how old this thing is you know yeah. and, and how cool it is so um good for that and we've both of us, I feel like I've heard nothing but incredible praise for Dubai's effort um, in hosting it. I've, a couple of people that I know that went were like, it was it was really cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. yeah, inshallah, they they get this, Richard. Inshallah. Um, we'll see in November. Yet another story to follow. Indeed. Uh, Richard, my one big thing this week. So in the Sustig News Review last Thursday or Friday... I probably should have written that down before starting this. I think it was Friday, but the New York Times featured an interview uh, last week, and it was called What It's Like to Be a Female Tour Guide in Saudi Arabia. And it was, you know, an interview style piece with Fatima Al-Zimam, um, who introduced visitors from around the world to her country, opened up her own business as a tourist guide. Um, and as the NYT article says, she discusses her favorite sites, driving a pickup truck around and how her country is changing. And this piece is worth reading. It's kind of an easy read because it's so uh, just it's very casual and it's a Q&A format. It's just like kind of cool and refreshing. But just sort of reading it, Richard, I, I thought in the moment just how much progress we're seeing in just a few years for Saudi women. It, it feels cliche to say that now, but it's still striking nonetheless. And just seeing this article and the scene presented here by this article in the paper of record for the United States and some would argue the world, the New York Times, in my opinion, second to none. It's a Saudi woman, a female entrepreneur in the tourism space, which didn't even exist, giving an interview um, on the record, getting her picture taken, showing herself driving her, her truck, talking about her business, the reforms going on in Saudi Arabia, Al-Allah. It just, um, I just sort of like was struck by this whole, the look of this piece, you know, how things have really changed. So, and we've had Richard, the enormous fortune to speak with some really dynamic and ultra capable women on the 966. Last week, of course, Dana Al-Ajlani, who is just terrific. Please go back and listen to that if you have not. Uh, just awesome. a wonderful conversation, uh, uh, just terrific. And Richard, we've had recently as well, Saudi female entrepreneur, Sarah Bin Laden and Renata Jeffrey. And Richard, we had a lot of Saudi women. I went back and sort of looked at it and we've had a lot of Saudi women on this, this program. Gada Al-Hardi from Barker Langham, Day Al-Daiwan, um, Center for Development of Urban Design and Planning for Saudi Cities, 
the team Al Hamlan, who's terrific consultant at the uh, King Faisal Specialist Hospital and Research Center, Dr. Doa Al Saleh from Mount Sinai, Raghav Fatadin, uh, Reem Philby, Lena Almaina, uh, Lena Almaina, excuse me, May Almozani. We so and just kind of thinking about it, we've had just some really impressive guests, uh, Saudi female guests on this program. Obviously, just a tiny fraction of the larger number of Saudi women out there that are exceptional professionals and human beings. And so just reading that article got me thinking about just the amount of progress in the last five or six years. We really are seeing real results of the reforms included as part of Vision 2030. And those are positive liberal reforms that are empowering Saudi women, not all at once. They weren't enacted, you know, in 2016, 2017. They sort of gradually phased in, but with a steady tempo that kind of indicated where the ship was heading eventually. And that has caused some cultural and societal shifts as well. And and there are many from from significant to um, just noteworthy, but, you know, ban- lifting the ban on women driving, outlawing gender discrip- discrimination in the workforce, um, mandating equal wages, retirement ages, forbidding the dismissal of women from jobs for maternity reasons, um, criminalizing sexual harassment, loosening the dress code in Saudi Arabia. All of these things, Richard, just started coming in one after the other and really giving women a chance to enter the workforce and have had a knock on effect socially as well. Things like unmarried women and men are now now allowed to mix together and network together in public. You know, we take those things for granted here in the West, but to have that now means it's a real possibility for Saudi women to network and, you know, explore new job opportunities and Richard, it's, it's really kind of amazing because women employees made up around 37% now of the labor market in Saudi Arabia in 2022. The number of female Saudis working at the kingdom's private, working in the kingdom's private sector, excuse me, surpassed 900,000 for the first time in May of this year. That's a pretty steady and solid increase. In 2019, for example, women made up 26% of the Saudi workforce, 20% in 2018 and 17.6% in 2017. And I'm going to borrow a little bit of data here from a, a late 20, 2022 piece um, from the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington by Susan Saikali. And she writes, by the first quarter of 2022, 39% of Saudi women in the private sector held senior and middle management positions. As of March of 2022, about 27.7% of women were working in the education sector and 17.7% in the retail and wholesale sec- sectors. Uh, now, of course, Richard, we you know, sort of six years on into Vision 2030, it's called that because there are expectations of this being goals being hit by 2030. We have a little time to go and there is a lot of work left to do for Saudi women, uh, increasingly putting women in the highest positions across the public and private sector. We can expect more progress here. Princess Rima is probably the most popular example, but you also have and Richard, I got a long list here. I'm going to go through a few of these. There's no way to list them all without this becoming a uh, Amazon audiobook <laughs> instead of a <laughs> podcast. But just a few. I mean, Sarah Al Suhaimi, first Saudi woman to chair the Saudi Arabian Stock Exchange, the first female board member of the Saudi Central Bank, Shaila Al Walali. Sorry about the butchering of that. Rania <laughs> Barnawi, a stem cell researcher, became the first woman from the kingdom to go to space. We discussed that recently as well. Michelle Al-Shamari is the first aerospace engineer woman in the GCC and the first Saudi woman to join NASA. Oh man, there's so many, so many here. Uh, another example, not just in the private sector business, but Al-Nud Al-Amsari uh, became the first Saudi female referee to receive the international badge from FIFA. 
anyway, so there's all these firsts coming in. It seems like once a week, there's some new first, some new glass ceiling being shattered in Saudi Arabia. And so we keep hearing about that, but it's interesting to see the data behind it showing, yeah, indeed women are entering the workforces. They are taking new jobs and moving around and have some mobility. Um, so this is just, you know, I mean, it was just kind of like, I saw this and I was like, whoa, this article in the New York Times, I was like, you know, New York Times, Saudi woman driving a truck, running her own business, talking about tourism, just, it's kind of worth taking stock and saying, wow, like, so this things are actually changing. It is cliche basically on this podcast to say that Richard, we talk about it a lot, but it's just kind of cool to think about. Yeah, it's uh, and it is, it is a fun article to read. Um, I, I thought, I mean, two things initially, I, you may recall when I came back and, you know, and r raved on about my visit to Alula. Um, one of the things I talked about was the guides uh, and the setup mm -hmm. and how you could do it. And they were predominantly women. A lot of the women who had been educated in the local university there, and they were all capable, all very good, all extremely comfortable, uh, outgoing, engaging. You know, it was a it was a great opportunity for them to be, you know, to be employed gainfully in an interesting job, uh, you know, right in their hometown. They didn't have to go to Riyadh for this, uh, you know, which turns back to Mrs. Imam in the New York Times article. I mean, she can do this job now because there's tourism. You know all these all these offshoots. The other thing that comes to mind, and and I think it's important that these sort of marquee names for women who are in prominent posts and this sort of thing, you know, are recognized. Like you 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 listed a number of them, and there's so many more. We know there's so many capable women in Saudi Arabia. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, the next goal, I think, for people like Dana Al-Ajlani and the Women in Business Committee with the Amcham KOSA is to to uh, position more and more women systemically, you know, so when you go for a CEO or a president or or a managing director or whatever, they're in that middle management, a really capable, seasoned, experienced women, you know, that that have done it and can do it and can move on up. And that's when you start. That's when you start. You know, we'll see success. I think we'll I think we'll feel a true success and a real turning of the, the ship, even though obviously no, it's made, I made a directional changes moving forward in a, in a positive way when. A woman is named to a senior C-suite position and nobody mentions it. You know, it goes unnoticed because it's 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 a regular thing, and and that's always you know that'll be an interesting uh, litmus test. And finally, um, I think we've done a lot of good things at the nine six six. I think it's a it's a format. It's unique. Nobody else is doing it. I think we add real value to the conversation. Um, it's something we're trying to do, obviously. I don't think anybody has sort of put forward more young Saudis, in particular women, than we have. You know, we've platformed people that you wouldn't know if you were a listener, you would never have heard of. And and not only would you have never heard of, when you get to hear them, they're really interesting doing, you know, uh, fascinating, uh, meaningful, purposeful things. Uh, so I, that's one thing I'm particularly proud of at the 966 is that is that we've platformed these kind of people. Yeah, Richard, and I'm glad you mentioned just you said a couple of really good things there. But the first one just wanted to note, you know, to move for Saudi Arabia to move to the point where a Saudi woman 
achieves a high position of prominence and it's not really mentioned that she is a woman it's just like she's the she's the appointee she's the person who got hired and the fact that it's a woman is irrelevant it's just that's who the most qualified person is and that's the end of the conversation that's that's a goal to be reached and i think it's achievable definitely within the next seven years but i feel like we will always be sort of viewing it through this lens of because we're, we're watching the Saudi women kind of catch up with the progress. That's what we'll see. I should note, Richard, like, you know, we're, we're both obviously American. 10% of the Fortune 500 companies in the US are, are head by women. So yeah, we're far and, from being in a position to lecture in, in this regard. So and, I, and, and yeah, 100%. I mean, it's always good to remember. It's always good to remember 2018. That's when women are allowed to drive. Mm -hmm. And then you had a cascade of other liberating legislation or, or decisions that gave women more power over their, their lives and their families. Um, but it's very recent stuff. So when, you know, when we talk about it, it's really trying to put a pin in it and say, this is where we are now. This is where it's headed. Um, and it is fun when, you, as you say, when, you know, an NYT article that is not, you know, you read the article and it's just a celebration. It's just, I came and I met this woman who was really cool. She's doing all this neat stuff. It wasn't, uh, I don't know. It was kind of reporting as it should be. It was reporting of the situation. It didn't have a lot of context in terms of, of, uh, you know, you know, there wasn't a lot of meaning attached to the report. It was like, I went there, this was cool. She's doing neat things. Yeah. I, I, I agree. And that's, that is kind of just like how it jumped out to me. And, you know, Richard, I, I, I forgot to mention this in, in my piece here as well, but vision 2030 included a goal of increasing female participation in the workforce to 30%. So they, they've blown by that. And we've talked about that before on this podcast. And then Richard, you also, the other thing I wanted to mention is you mentioned earlier that you and I know a lot of kind of, you know, impressive and, and intelligent and wonderful Saudi women through our work with the Saudi U.S. trade group over the years, delegations, major events we organize. I think if someone were to ask us in 2016, right before Vision 2030 were announced, that if these reforms were rolled out, what do you think would happen in Saudi Arabia and to its economy? I think we would have replied with what we are seeing now in real life. You know, female participation in the workforce would increase, efficiency would increase, quality of life for women would improve because we know a lot of these Saudi women and how impressive and what a sleeping giant they were in the economy. And I believe that that's what Saudi authorities saw as well. Um, I still have never had a female Saudi Uber driver, even though when you summon, and I take maybe 30 or 40 Uber rides every time I go. I still have, but the, but the icon on the Uber app is a Saudi female driver. And it's just, <laughs> I don't know, um, so that's one thing that has not happened yet, but um, I know they're out there. So anyway, just, just cool stuff. And Richard, we're actually about to have a conversation now and we can get to it unless you have something else to uh No, no, I think it segues nicely. Perfectly, yeah. So let's get to our conversation now with Kanta Ahmed. She's wonderful. And um, I think you guys are gonna enjoy this very much. Joining us now on the 966, Dr. Kanta Ahmed, physician, nonfiction author, broadcast media commentator, and writer. Dr. Kanta's got an amazing CV. She's an academic pulmonologist and sleep disorder specialist at NYU Langone in New York. She's an author and writer whose articles, columns, and opinions have been published in over 16 major market news outlets across the world. Dr. Kanta has lived in and visited Saudi Arabia now for a period spanning over three decades. She first visited Saudi Arabia as a single female doctor in 1999 and wrote a book called In the Land of Invisible Women. 
Since then, she's personally seen the changes ongoing in the kingdom in recent years since the launch of Vision 2030, and in recent months, indeed as well, visiting Saudi Arabia as the guest of the Muslim World League and the at the invitation of Secretary General Dr. Mohammed Al Issa. Dr. Kanta, we're very excited to be speaking with you. Thank you for joining us on the 966. It's a pleasure. It's an absolute privilege. So excited to be with the 966. Oh, the privilege is ours. Thank yeah. you so much. You've been very patient. We we finally get you on, and this is exciting. And let's just jump right into it. Lucian's introduction's terrific, as they always are. Um, oh, thank you. We were laughing beforehand, uh, Kanto, you know, about your sort of uh, inadvertent longitudinal study of Saudi Arabia. Right. Uh, going back to 1999, can you take us to the beginning, you know, and, and, and discuss your initial encounter? What what drew you to this engagement? And, and what were your impressions in 1999? Richard, thank you so much for this question. Actually, I was thinking about this deeply today. Even the name of your podcast, 966, brings back so much nostalgia. Because, of course, I had a home phone number beginning with 966. And my home phone number was an extension um, of the National Guard Hospital it was $4 a minute to call the United States from Riyadh. And today, I was, as I was preparing for our um, talk, one of the first memories I have is of the incredible silence. I was driven by uh, what we call euphemistically limo drivers. Being a single woman, there was no driving permitted for women in 1999. So if I went anywhere, Zakaria, my Egyptian Christian driver, would take me. And we were sitting at a traffic light right outside of the National Guard Hospital, which at the time was situated near where the football stadium was. And there was nothing else there. There was just a football stadium and a hospital. Nobody lived out there. Riyadh had not really progressed to that area. And just sitting at the traffic light, you could hear the crackle of a radio in a neighboring car when you had the window open. And recently coming back from Saudi Arabia at the Saudi Media Forum in February, just the scale of the activity, the expansion, the development, the energy, the fact that Saudi Arabia truly is rocking so many sectors of international trade, sports, politics, energy. I just can't even begin to put into words the colossal change that I've been able to see in these 30 years. It's really, really hard for anybody who's not experienced that to understand how it's gone from a place that was really very important from an Islamic standpoint, but so unknown to most of the planet. And here we are with the podcast, the most listened to in the English language, beginning with the area code that was once dialing in to speak to me. Marvelous. That is a, that is a trip down memory lane, and and uh, so many things are different. So uh, when you leaves you that words, in fact, you wrote a a, a a book that has sold very well in multiple countries as a result of your experience, and and sort of as as a, a starting point, a benchmark. Uh, this book in the land of invisible women. Uh, you know, you came out of your experience, and you wrote this book. What was, your, what, what was your take at that time on Saudi Arabia? Well, I um, went there absolutely ignorant of Saudi Arabia. And because I was a just on the threshold of 30 or just having turned 30, um, a highly trained critical care physician felt that I knew 
probably most things that I needed to know. I was raised as a Muslim woman uh, by uh, Pakistani migrants in Britain. I knew Islam. I didn't do any preparation. Right before leaving JFK to go to Riyadh, there was a magazine rack in the airport, and I saw a picture of a Saudi gentleman, and it was a Forbes magazine profiling Prince Al-Walid bin Talal. And I thought, well, you know, he's from Saudi Arabia. Let me read the magazine on the way over. I'll learn something about Saudi Arabia. And then I practiced medicine. And when I practiced medicine, it was high on octane, full on steroids, critical care with better equipment, more resources, more capabilities, and in many ways, more sophistication than the critical care medicine I'd left in New York City in 1999. But outside of that, nothing was comprehensible to me as a Muslim woman. And that was what was the astonishing, jarring shock. And bear in mind, I arrived on Thanksgiving Day in 1999. The world was preparing for Y2K. That was the biggest anxiety that maybe all, whatever limited digitalization we had then would collapse on January 1st. So that was the uh, environment. And when I left Saudi Arabia, it happened to be um, in time with avoiding another contract rolling into the next year. So I'd taken an elective resignation. I'd circled in my diary the date that I would hand in my resignation letter. I think it's very important. People should re resign at least once in their life. It's, it's an important thing to do. And I came home and turned on the television and watched NBC Today and saw September 11th. And so those two events, Y2K and September 11th, are essentially the parentheses on my time at that point. And when I came back to New York City, which is, was my origin in the United States, you could still smell what was happening at ground zero. Um, ultimately, those survivors are now my patients. Decades later, I look after uh, people that have survived that. I realized that I'd been on a journey in medicine. I had made the Hajj. I had been in the journey inside my own relationship with Islam. And I'd been to a place that most people in the West completely misunderstood and did not know. And underneath all of that orthodoxy that all of us lived through, whether we were uh, British American expats, whether we were European Muslims or, or Saudis ourselves, we were all subject to the yoke of Wahhabi, neo-orthodox fundamentalism that most Saudis themselves did not uh, subscribe to and were very oppressed I did not choose the name of my book. This was a choice made by the publisher and I objected to it um, severely because I felt the women were not invisible. Men were just as marginalized by the ideology as women. And it was a great um, restriction on all humanity, that form of neo-orthodoxy that outsiders like us might refer to as Wahhabism. And from there, we now see the tremendous blossoming, including in how Islam is expressed in Saudi Arabia, not only the movement of women, but it's, it's really been an, a, an amazing journey. And so that journey around the time of 9-11 is when I began to think about writing it. It took almost um, six or seven years to get published. That's fascinating. First of all, full, full marks and compliments for the courage and the initiative just to yeah. go. Yep. You know, um, you know, that's a, that's a, a courageous thing to do. Most people don't do it, especially, you know, a single women. 
And, you know, it, 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 uh, obviously you're an, an accomplished professional in any number of other ways involved with any, you know, uh, significant initiatives outside of your profession, but this is sort of a, a foundational leap that you took. And I, I think that's really impressive. Second of all, I think it's really interesting that, you, you know, that choice of land of invisible women, because both Lucian and I will attest, and I know you, you absolutely could speak to this. Uh, some of the most impressive women I've ever met are in Saudi Arabia. Yep. And, uh, and I also agree with you that as, as we were talking beforehand, Conte, you know, I, I had been there first went there in, in the early eighties, this latent urge, both male and female to, uh, to expand their existence and that of their country, you know, obviously they're, they're, they're proud and, 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 uh, the Saudis happy to be Saudi Saudis, but they understand what their environment is and how it can be improved and, and why it had gotten to the situation was at, when you were first there. So let's jump to what prompted you to re-engage with Saudi Arabia? So in fact, after I left the kingdom, I continued to come back at the invitation of my academic colleagues at the National Guard um, Health Affairs they have remained, uh, some of them, tremendous colleagues. One of them, a uh, very acclaimed um, expert in infectious disease internationally, Dr. Ziad Memish. We have written dozens of papers together about Hajj medicine. We wrote some of the sentinel academic papers on that field. Um, and so there were academic pursuits that kept me visiting. Um, and so, uh, and I never stopped following the kingdom, but I deepened my interest after realizing there is a different kind of Islam that I'm not familiar with, realizing that there were some perpetrators that did not represent Saudis, did not represent Muslims, called themselves uh, Muslims and perpetrated Islamist jihadism, I took almost a, a decade, decade and a half pursuit understanding Islamist jihadism and began visiting the region elsewhere, particularly to the state of Israel. And when I started to visit Israel, I felt there may not be a way to come back, even though I was never impugned by the kingdom, never, I didn't experience any retaliation. Nobody said that to me. So I sort of uh, circumnavigated the kingdom for those years. And I still, um, whenever possible, wanted to set the record straight about the true Saudi kingdom, even before Vision 2030 came in, into being. Um, and that was because I see this constant stereotype, which predates September 11th. I, I grew up as a young child when there was this whole scandal in, in Britain and in the Western press uh, surrounding the uh, concept of death of a princess. And if it's not that, it's some other issue. And if it's not that, it's Islamist uh, um, jihadist we can say Osama bin Laden, who, by the way, was stripped of his Saudi citizenship. And Saudi Arabia was the first nation to warn the United States about this uh, movement. Um, all those things are lost in, in translation. And so I was always very concerned that people understand the true Saudis. And the true Saudis I had the privilege of knowing was not just my very well-heeled colleagues who'd trained in Canada and the United States, including men and women who were Saudis, but the grandmothers and the mothers of the National Guard soldiers who were my patients, these were Bedouin women who, and Bedouin men, many of them were not literate in Arabic, who welcomed me when I was looking after their family member, would bring me boxes of fresh dates from their farms, 
Sometimes they would shyly grab my hand and wipe incense or utter on my hand as a gift. Absolutely thrilled that I was a woman doctor, thrilled that I was a Muslim, and thrilled I was from the United States. This is a side of Saudi Arabia that people still don't see. Even Saudis today don't know it. And one thing I've learned almost 38 years after I went to medical school is being a physician is such a unique vantage and privilege. A human being in front of me puts their trust in me to help them with their health, whatever aspect it might be, physical or psychological or other. And there is an unveiling of humanity that when you meet as doctor and patient, you understand profoundly about the society in which you engage. And that's true of Saudi Arabia. That's true of the United States. And while I've been following the kingdom, I have been looking with great concern as to what is happening to my chosen uh, place of living, New York or the United States, in comparison to Saudi Arabia. And it's this widening chasm that has me actually very worried about the United States as I see Saudi Arabia moving into sectors and into a mindset that is so profoundly American and yet while we're in America, we are losing that mindset, whether it's medicine, whether it's industry, whether it's family values, whether it's faith. There are so many contrasts and so much to gain by looking at ourselves through the reflection of our relationship between the United States and Saudi Arabia. Maybe we can, and, and I'm not sure I'm going to properly phrase this, so help me out. Um, one of the things we've discovered in doing this show, and I think maybe we knew it intuitively, but so when we would talk with artists or um, or in entrepreneurs or anybody, what you discover was this talent, this drive, this passion, this hope all existed pre-Vision 2030. It was there. Um, and that's this is what you're saying, I think. You know, there, so much of this was there. So... But clearly, uh, so much of this population, Saudi population, has embraced the Vision 2030. Uh, it, it, it's, the, it's now their working paradigm, how they go about things, what they think is possible. Can you talk, maybe share your perspective on what are the most striking changes? And I, and I want our listeners, and I hope you'll agree to understand that, yes, there's striking changes, but this sentiment, this drive, it's, it's been there. Yes. Um, so you mentioned about uh, meeting women from Saudi Arabia and how extraordinary they are. And of course, we come from a society where there are tremendous opportunities for women here in the United States. And so very early on, I had very few female colleagues. I was um, appointed there at a level essentially as a consultant in critical care medicine. I was the first woman in, in that healthcare system to provide critical care. I trained the first women in that country in critical care medicine, and that is high stakes medicine. Um, but the isolated female colleagues I had, some of them were from extraordinarily privileged backgrounds. They had no need to ever earn a living. They had no need to venture into difficult, challenging medicine where everything can go wrong, but they had a great appetite for it. They were surgically skilled. They would go overseas to seek higher training at a time when travel was considered actually also a matter of family honor if a woman is traveling away from her family. 
And they did it surrounded by male colleagues who were, many of them were extremely supportive to me, but culturally may have been hesitant to show that support to a fellow Saudi woman. So I saw them as pioneers. One of my most esteemed colleagues, and I've not seen her for some years, but she's made a huge impact on me, Dr. Maha Al-Manif was with me attending critically ill children, some of whom came in, in dire circumstances where we were concerned about their situation at home. She went on to found the first shelters for women at risk and children at risk in the kingdom. And how do you build shelters for those that might be subject to domestic abuse, domestic violence, which affects all societies? You go in person in your abaya and you speak at every courthouse to every judge. And you do so well before these circumstances where there's such fruit freedom and such uh, integration in society. So the amount of courage, and she had actually the sponsorship of King Abdullah and one of King Abdullah's daughters. So the king himself supported these movements over 15 to 20 years ago. Very few people know that. I dedicated a, a chapter in my book um, about that. Uh, si similarly, you would have women that were some of the first obstetricians, women that were some of the first nutritionists, one of them, uh, Dr. Duha, Dua Hamuda created some of the first franchises in organic restaurants. As I was leaving, the kingdom was beginning to do that. So they had an entrepreneurial spirit from the start. And so they have always had this sentiment of drive. And you have to, to survive in that kind of environment where the climate, the irrigation, the the fact that the kingdom historically was the center of so many paths of merchants from Africa all the way up to the Levant. So they have had this in them for centuries. And it's wonderful that people can see their drive, their imagination, but also their deep sense of national pride. And the reason I'm struck by that on recent visits is because we're really beginning to see an erosion in our sense of nationhood and our love for our fellow citizen in the United States. And actually even more striking than what I've seen in Saudi Arabia is when I am in Saudi Arabia and I turn and I look um, westwards and now I'm able to see the United States from a distance. That's where I see the chasm between where they are going and where we are slipping away. We've talked about that on the 966 and I, and I think um, certainly <clears throat> so for example the Arab barometer talks about attitudes uh, you know one of the broadest survey of public opinion and one of the one of the issues for uh, the U.S. in terms of how it's perceived in the region is credibility and a lot of that has to do with how we're behaving at home but let's talk about uh, you describe Saudi Arabia as a maturing G20 nation uh, what th this is this is a, an important theme. Can you expand on that and tell us what you mean by that? Well, I think, and perhaps it's coming from a bias where I see how Saudi Arabia is uh, reported on news in sound bites, without an understanding that Saudi Arabia is integral to not only the BRICS nations. Saudi Arabia is historically the epicenter of Islam and the Muslim majority world looks to Saudi Arabia for leadership. 
Additionally, we have two of the most populous countries in the world, Pakistan and Indonesia, that are now rivaling one another for the highest number of Muslims, not counting the number of Muslims that are in India. The entire fulcrum of population and um, subsequent generations, the growth of Islam, the trade and economics that happens in that region of the world means that Saudi Arabia is is a central kingpin in many of the decisions made, whatever the issues are being discussed. But I think two instances were most striking to me. And I was in Saudi Arabia in October last year and also February this year. Shortly after I was back in October, we had an OPEC decision made that the United States did not like an OPEC and OPEC plus, plus decision made, which the United States commentators felt was uh, deliberately uh, to sabotage or undermine U.S. interests with this unfolding uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine to do with energy pricing. And failure to report how that is a global decision, and I know you have other commentators speaking about energy, in addition to failure to mention the Saudi Arabian government that had played a critical role in the release of hostages held by Russia, including American citizens. That was sort of vanished and not reported. Made me understand that there is an expectation to engage with Saudi Arabia, not on an equal plane. Now, the United States is a tremendous superpower. Saudi Arabia is a huge petrochemical power. There, there's not an equivalence. But Saudi Arabia is no longer a nation uh, that uh, will provide energy on its bidding of the 20th century. It is a very important influencer that is rightly maintaining its neutrality in, for instance, this extremely uh, troubling conflict between Russia and Ukraine. And so for Saudi Arabia to be able to use its relationships that it's built through almost 80 years, 80 years of engaging in energy with, for instance, Russia, is only to the benefit of the West. And yet it is portrayed and villainized and demonized for maintaining neutrality. And I think I see this again and again. There's no understanding of its role in the G20. There's no understanding Saudi Arabia is becoming extremely sophisticated in areas of diplomacy outside of energy. There's a traditional thinking of oil for security as the only engagement with the West. That is not correct. And I also think um, there's been tremendous bias, which has been perpetuated um, for various interests um, to portray negatively the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, which, ser which serves certain narratives, which means that the West does not look at Saudi Arabia intelligently or truly deeply or critically. It's much easier to caricature a country that you don't want to understand deeply, maybe because you fear that the country is changing, is maturing, is becoming more sophisticated. And it's much easier to think about it without nuance in, in tandem with old tropes. Now, I'm aware that you are a co-founder of the uh, Saudi-US trade group and you have very sophisticated understandings and this is not denigrating my adoptive nation. I'm a very proud naturalized American, but we could do a lot better. 
And I think we have a great deal to learn from how Saudi Arabia manages these issues. Another example I'll give you. In September 2020, I was privileged to be on the South Lawn in the White House during the signing of the Abraham Accords. And that was historic and momentous, and I think was a tremendous contribution um, to the, the nations in the region and, and uh, the United States. I think it's very important, and I'm a strong uh, advocate for the Abraham Accords. And there's been a constant um, drumbeat as to when Saudi Arabia will become a party and a participant and how uh, Saudi Arabia could be drawn into this as if the kingdom could or operates on inducements or, or in a transactional capacity and not as an entity creating and engaging in a vision and direction of its own making. I do, in fact, believe Saudi Arabia, and I have no access to any uh, 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 diplomats, so I'm just speculating. I absolutely do believe Saudi Arabia will eventually become a treaty to this agreement. I do believe Saudi Arabia will work with the surrounding region to stabilize the intensely, um, deeply fissured conflict uh, between uh, Israel and Palestine. I think that's to everybody's advantage, but Saudi Arabia will do it on its own terms. Saudi Arabia will probably lead those negotiations with the Arab world. And this is where I think the United States has become somewhat um, fossilized and somewhat stuck in a 20th century mindset when the 21st century shows us how this region and the kingdom in particular is rewriting the script. I, I think that's well said, and I think it it is speaks to a, a regular theme here on the nine six six, and and there's so much to unwrap there. Um, certainly, we have advocated for a very long time that the U.S. updates first its administration and, and and opinion leaders and and people who are making decisions within the administration update revamp its its understanding of Saudi Arabia and the relationship. I will say. You know, that October event, the OPEC decision, uh, you know, uh, coming uh, on the heels of the invasion of uh, Ukraine in, by Russia in February 2022, uh, and was received as we, I think it was, a, what, what do we called it? A, you know, brouhaha, you know, a, a, but it was a firestorm. That's what we've called it. Yes. Uh, because it was during an election in November. And uh I would say, and I want to move on actually to another question, but I would say mm -hmm. that the communication, the understanding, the relationship has actually progressed positively since then, in part because of that, and that we're actually in a better position now, not, not where we want to be, but it also doesn't speak to what you're saying, that America prefers its tropes, and it, 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 it need, there is very little nuance, which I think is something we're trying to get to here. But there's a very important thing that you've got there. Uh, and this is how Saudi Arabia, in a variety of ways, influences the world. And in particular, uh, you mentioned Pakistan and Indonesia, and also India as you know significant uh, Muslim populations who pay close attention to Saudi Arabia. One of the things that the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman has been 
you know, is a key pillar of Vision 2030 is a rediscovery and a promotion of a moderate Islam. And he would say, mm. as many people around him would say, this is not a moderate Islam. This is original Islam, which is inherently mm -hmm. moderate. So, mm -hmm. you know, it had been co-opted, hijacked. Uh, we are trying to uh, recover this and, and, and be, in their minds, proper Muslims. Uh, a major important vehicle of this is the Muslim World League. And Absolutely. Dr. Muhammad Alisa, who currently is in India at this moment. Mm. And, and he has been extremely active in taking this message forward, embodying this message. He, you know, he, he, he visited Holocaust uh, museums and, mm -hmm. and he's been uh, sort of the, the figurehead for moderation. Can you talk a little bit about, about the Muslim World League and Dr. Muhammad? My pleasure. In fact, it was uh, extraordinarily uh, uh, stunning to me that one of his advisors, uh, Dr. Haya Al-Jadua, contacted me after I was speaking about uh, the Saudi Arabia on Newsmax. And uh, I spoke about it's no, it's absolutely unfair to demonize the kingdom uh, in some other context. President Biden had been visiting Saudi Arabia at the time. And she asked me to meet, to come to the kingdom and meet Dr. Muhammad Ali. So, and I said, well, you know, that's very nice. Uh, I'm not sure who he is. And by the way, I've spent almost a dozen trips to Israel and maybe you're not going to be able to have me. And, uh, and uh, I've lost most of my Saudi friends because they've called me a Zionist. And she starts laughing. And I'm thinking, well, obviously she doesn't know what I, what a Zionist is in uh, when it's a, uh, said in a not uh, uh, respectful way. And um, she said, no, you don't understand. She said, uh, Dr. Alisa has been to Auschwitz. Um, he has led the most senior delegation of Muslims to pray in Auschwitz. He's named uh, the Holocaust as a crime against humanity. Uh, he just gave the uh, sermon at Mecca and I had read about his sermon in the New York Times. So a few months later, I was there at his Riyadh offices in a private uh, meeting with him that was off the record, but I've been able to write about it and disclose a lot of what we discussed. Um, and um, I just was astounded, not only by his intellect. He, we had a translator. I'm not fluent in Arabic. I can read Arabic, but I can't converse in Arabic. Um, his translator actually speaks fluent Urdu, and so we spoke in English, I spoke in English, she spoke in Arabic, and our short meeting turned into almost four hours, where we discussed Islamism. One of the first things Dr. Alisa talked to me about was his fears about the Russia-Ukraine war. And could we imagine that we have two Christian nations at war with, an, with one another using the language of holy war? Because, of course, uh, Putin had been speaking about his very fire-breathing Orthodox uh, uh, Christian um, uh, leader. I forget the name of his uh, Christian priest that's, that's very pro uh, the conflict. And, and uh, Zelensky had been speaking about Ukrainian soldiers being lost as martyrs. And so this language in the context of Saudi Arabia's experience with uh, the sharp end of Islamist jihadism in a terrible way just immediately revealed to me what a deep thinker Dr. Alisa is. His experience of Islam um, and his values that he is able to um, expose to the world are exactly the Islam in which I was raised. 
which then came to such brutal collisions with the state-enforced orthodoxy that I had encountered 23 years ago. Um, it's mo- it's, and there's so many things that Dr. Alisa is doing. The most important that he's done recently is author a document called the Charter of Mecca, which was made public in 2019. And it extols, I think, about 15 tenets, which include there can be no compulsion in faith. Every creed has its place. There is more than one route to our maker. Um, there can be no prejudice, prejudice or racism in the name of religion. The importance of environmental stewardship, the importance of preserving human dignity. And these are not just sayings. These are now becoming implementations in various programs. And I was just at one of the first meetings in London with European Muslim leaders. But even more than his work in that capacity, we recently uh, met with him here at the United Nations when he was bringing an interfaith dialogue into the United Nations in New York City. It is also the fact that Dr. Al-Isa is so deeply supported by the Saudi monarchy, by the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, and how skillfully and um, expertly the yoke or the mantle of neo-Orthodox fundamentalism has been lifted from Saudi Arabia and therefore from legitimacy through the Muslim world to allow true Islam to engage without violence, without upheaval, without revolution. And that has been done by introducing new thinkers with true pluralist values in Islam, engaging in dialogue whereby at one of the Muslim world leaders Uh, meetings in London, I was able to meet a leading Shia cleric who has been recognized by the crown prince in Saudi Arabia and who is calling for engagement between Sunnis and Shias inside the kingdom where Shias can now uh, provide the literature on their religious values in the kingdom in a way to not marginalize and isolate different believers into silos where hostilities can breed. And this is absolutely lost on Western commentators. And this can only happen because these are the values of King Salman and these are the values of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who one day will become king. This could never happen only with the intellect of Dr. Muhammad Ali Sir. Dr. Muhammad Ali Sir is not just Secretary General of the Muslim World League, which as you know is international. It is not a Saudi organization. It was founded in Mecca, but it is an international organization with a Supreme Council of about 60 members from different Muslim-majority countries. That is the giant hub that rotates the 1.6 billion Muslims around the world. And that's why the influence of Dr. Elisa represents the sentiment and philosophy of the apex of the Saudi kingdom. And that is why it's so extraordinary. Dr. Kanta, you have visited Saudi Arabia in several capacities, professional capacity um, as a tourist and as someone who has performed the Hajj. You're also an academic expert on Hajj medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about that as well? Well, you know, we wrote some of the earliest papers in English, not the first, because part of our papers, um, I went to the British Library and dug up 
from the 19th century, <laughs> archives from British medical literature of what was said about the Muslim pilgrimage when Muslims, they were, we were referred to as Mohammedans in academic papers. Um, but we did realize that there is a remarkable um, uh, challenge in managing humanity in the pilgrimage. And in, in fact, this is a, this may actually tie into all of the themes we've just been talking about, um, where we have to perform these rituals. When I performed the Hajj, uh, by the grace of God, it was the year 2000. And that year, if I remember correctly, about 2.2 million people or 2.5 million people were engaging in the Hajj. Remember, really very few cell phones. I didn't have a cell phone. There was not Wi-Fi everywhere. Um, there were so many aspects in technology that we didn't have. And yet 2.5 million people can complete this ritual, which is in a number of days in very confined circumstances. And that happens because of the Islamic principle. When you're in Hajj, you can bear no ill to anybody. You cannot lose your temper. You cannot bring a weapon anywhere close to that area. The only way humanity can engage and complete Hajj is through cooperation. And that is the metaphor of Hajj. We say in Islam, when you are conducting Hajj, you are presenting yourself to meet your maker in this lifetime. That is what we believe. And you go to Hajj only by invitation. And my invitation came in a very strange way right after we had saved the life of a critically ill young girl who was 14. And a colleague said to me, look, why don't you go to Hajj? Because you never know when you'll be here again. And that was my invitation. I had no previous intention to do that. And that metaphor of, of putting your own needs behind those of maybe the elderly person next to you, maybe the disabled person, maybe the baby, maybe whoever may be conducting that alongside you in crowds of millions, tolerating temperature, tolerating proximity, tolerating thirst, that metaphor for cooperation is something that greatly determines the philosophy of the kingdom. We can talk about the health risks. I mean, it has Saudi Arabia has developed a unique expertise in managing epidemics, pandemics, mass gatherings, heat exposure, dehydration, respiratory infections, whether masks were useful. I mean, all of that and the experts in Hajj, there's a ministry of Hajj, the experts in Hajj Health now inform the Olympics and they inform the World Cup and they inform American inaugurations. Much more important than that is the Hajj happens every year and there is a nine-month lead time to prepare for a three-month um, Hajj season. And that event is bigger than the Olympics happening annually, involving Muslims from 193 countries and their governments. So if you have Ebola in Uganda, you have to now plan for what's going to happen to the Ugandan Muslims. If you have a conflict with a neighboring nation, let's say uh, Ukraine or sometimes Iran, how are you going to manage these pilgrims? Saudi Arabia has been engaging in global diplomacy with the Hajj as, at its epicenter for its entire existence. And that gives it remarkable skill and remarkable humility. Because, for instance, most moving to me was how Saudi Arabia managed the pandemic. Do you know Saudi Arabia was one of the very first nations to close its borders in February 2020, I think February 25th, 2020. Saudi Arabia immobilized its own population from going to pilgrimage, which is a very 
heartbreaking decision for the kingdom to make because the kingdom knows it is the guardian, the custodian of the two holiest cities. And eventually Saudi Arabia had a very, very pared down pilgrimage, including in 2020. If you look at the pictures, and I published an article about this in The Spectator in London, the images are truly balletic, like ballet, in a completely massive religious complex. People were distanced, people were protected, and just a handful of people were able to complete that. And little by little, they expanded it out to the world. That indicates to you the gravity and seriousness with which Saudi Arabia takes its role as the protector for the holiest sites for billions of humanity. And that's a responsibility that no other country in the world faces. And then when uh, Richard um, spoke about Pakistan, we're extremely worried. I'm from a Pakistani family about the stability and future of Pakistan. And next to Pakistan, Afghanistan, whose name is almost never mentioned, we know that we've had two decades of military and political solutions presented to Afghanistan that ended in abject failure with the Taliban now at the helm. How are we going to reach these communities other than through a language and dialogue of dismantling fundamentalism and enabling the blossoming of pluralist Islam? There is no Western diplomat that has that capability. And I'm not suggesting that that's Saudi Arabia's intention or its plan or an undertaking, but the method or the blueprint to remove neo-fundamentalism that oppresses men and women, that blueprint has been very clearly demonstrated in Saudi Arabia. It is not the way we're seeing the process in Iran, and hence my recent essay, it is absolutely through skillful empowering of pluralist voices, which the kingdom has been doing steadily for years. And Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman is greatly to be credited for catalyzing that and propagating that and taking the heat for that, because this is why the country is coming along. They're also using AI now to manage the Hajj, which is interesting. You were recently in Saudi Arabia in February at the Saudi Media Forum. You talked about Saudi Arabia, the importance of Saudi Arabia investing in AI and AI systems because they're based on learned information. Um, and you discussed the future of AI and you said, and this is uh, from Arab News, unless Saudi Arabia embraces AI from the outset, we are going to see an expanded bias that we are already seeing in the English language written media, which often promotes ancient stereotypes. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? I think that's super interesting. And we know Saudi Arabia is interested in AI. They're using it for the Hajj. But uh, can you expand on that just a little bit? That, that's fascinating. So, you know, it's funny because we were talking about AI this morning in uh, medicine. And it is, I, I think it's, it's extremely fascinating. It is extremely important that we get to engage with AI and, and put in the correct level of investment and education so that we are not locked out of this next technological shift. It would be, for instance, watching the computer revolution without having access to a PC or a Mac so we cannot have a country like Saudi Arabia be locked out. And especially when Saudi Arabia 
is at the apex of the Muslim world, where so much of the Muslim majority world is still not literate in its basic language, let alone literate in its religion. The reason I said that in the column and also at the media forum is because of exactly what we've just been talking about. And in fact, you in, at 966 are building precisely the kind of nuance and insight that is available almost nowhere else, unless you're in a little dinner party with people that have seasoned experience with Saudi Arabia. And I, even I may not be really so seasoned. And what I'm worried about is if we're using um, AI English language uh, platforms in Saudi Arabia, but almost all of the English language commentary about Saudi Arabia has not been written by Saudis, has not even been written by Westerners that travel to Saudi. All those media commentators, when they refer to the October OPEC uh, decision-making as the firestorm that uh, Richard mentioned, I'd expect that almost none of them had ever traveled, let alone lived in the kingdom or been amongst a Saudi family or really understood that industry from a level of intimacy to give them a uh, true perspective. Saudi Arabia needs to command not only its own uh, uh, sectors in trade and tourism and uh, religious tourism and, and recreational tourism. They need to increase their English language footprint whether it is a media um, outlet that may rival and one day supersede Al Jazeera, whether it is many more newspapers of the stature of the Arab news, which is a remarkably um, valuable um, uh, platform, which we used to read in the 1990s. It came in a green paper version. There was no digital version. Mm -hmm. it, it and that means known as the green truth. The green truth, yes. And so, right. and, and so, but that will require English language facility in Saudi journalism, English language facility in Saudi cable. It will, it needs Saudis who can write their own story in our language, not only their language. And I think they're just beginning to envision their, their story. I, I want to say one thing before we end, and I, and I, sense that we may be getting close to the end. And when I talk about being in Riyadh and looking eastwards and thinking about New York City, what I'm actually looking at is our younger generation. And the overwhelming feeling I got on returning to Saudi Arabia, apart from meeting the extraordinary colleagues at the Muslim World League, Dr. Muhammad Alisa, is the vibrance and the energy and the enthusiasm of the younger generation. When I first lived in Saudi Arabia, I couldn't believe I'd never seen so many Cadillacs and Mercedes Benz and and um, GMCs in one place ever, and I had also never seen so much black worn other than in New York. So I remember that vividly. But now, what I noticed when I was sitting, being driven around in a beautiful, you know, automobile somebody provided me is the number of Mazdas and the number of Suzukis and the number of Mini Coopers. The surge of a middle class in Saudi Arabia, which was so amazing. People were in their modest cars. There was a rush hour. They were busy going somewhere because they had to go to work or they were going shopping or they were going to an entertainment venue or they were going on a vacation. That mobility and that energy and that entire class of people did not exist when I lived there. We had 
We had the professionals, the diplomats, the soldiers, the doctors, the dentists. We had the National Guard. We had very few academics. And we had people that were impoverished, the Bedouins and the rural um, farm workers. But now there is a huge army of middle class. And that is the focus of the kingdom. And that intense focus how are we going to educate them? How are we going to feed them? How are we going to meet their sustainable energy needs? How are we going to keep them from becoming indoctrinated by some new fundamentalism or some new radicalization? And when I come back to the United States, I treat patients that are of that age, or I have, we have friends and family with people of that age. And I see the lack of direction and the lack of aspiration and the lack of hope and the lack of national focus on our youth. And that's the huge contrast. We are unfortunately running short on time, Dr. Conta. This has been absolutely marvelous. One last question, I promise, um, a short one. What's next for you? What's on the horizon for you? Well, um, what a great question. In fact, um, in terms of in terms of this, I'm very uh, interested uh, in uh, learning and, and speaking more about international religious freedom. I've been very concerned about the effects of Islamism, political Islam, and how it has uh, limited the rights and freedoms of people who are Christian, people who are Yazidi, and people who are pluralist Muslims. That's why I'm so invigorated to see the Saudi um uh, kingdom and the Muslim World League takes such a strong position against extremism and particularly uh, Islamist ideology. And so I'm hoping to be able to go back to Iraq, where I visited on three occasions to post-ISIS regions in northern Iraq and see how our uh, our, our efforts there are, are are unfolding with the Yazidi community. This is a community that I would like Saudi Arabia to take an interest in is these uh, people that have been left behind after conflict and they're still in refugee camps seven years later. There have been elections won on defeating ISIS here in the United States, but our Yazidi refugees do not have water. They do not have air conditioning. They do not have schools. Um, similarly, the veterans that fought those wars, the Peshmerga, their children don't have a future. So this part very much concerns me. And the other part is, you mentioned AI. I'm very interested in how AI is going to influence American medicine, particularly my discipline of sleep medicine. I'm very heavily engaged in advancing neurostimulation in sleep medicine. And in fact, speaking to colleagues about hopefully coming and speaking at a sleep medicine conference in Saudi Arabia. So maybe there will be finally a way that I can join <laughs> my academic sleep practice and my amateur foreign policy interests into Riyadh. I think that would be great. Inshallah, that'd be amazing. Dr. Kata, physician, nonfiction author, broadcast media commentator, writer, one of our favorite guests on the 966. Now we can add that to your CV. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been marvelous. You know. Absolute pleasure. Richard, that was our conversation with Dr. Kanta Ahmed, who was great. We thank her for her time, and we just really enjoyed that conversation. 
And well, kudos for you for the hookup. That was it was great to get her perspective because it's an unusual and meaningful perspective. She was terrific, and we really enjoyed that. So, um, yeah, good stuff, Richard. Let's get to Yella. Saudi and Yella. Yella. Everybody knows now that when we say let's get to Yella to remove your headphones, uh, by the way, you're listening to this. I think it's clear that we don't practice that. This is just to like how you're feeling at that particular moment. Like sometimes I get more energy to really go in and be stupid, which I, you know, I don't need a lot of pretext to be stupid. My kids will attest to that. Yep. Um, yeah. And, and other times it's a little more laid back and stuff. So yeah, this is completely spontaneous. This is, this is reality podcasting. This is reality audio and Richard, we should note too, that we have done that for all 94 episodes and it makes us laugh every time. And, and I think we're just going to continue. It would feel weird to not do it, to be honest. So, well, I, we don't want to break this. The, the, no. Yeah. The, yeah. So, and, and it, it completely unprompted. I have no idea how it started or why it started. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, number one, senior, Bi senior Biden advisor, Amos Hochstein met with Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu in Jerusalem on Tuesday to discuss U.S. efforts to get a normalization deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia and the recent tensions on the Israeli-Lebanese border, two Israeli officials told Axios. The White House is pushing to reach a set of agreements that would upgrade U.S.-Saudi relations and normalize relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Richard, how about the tear that President Biden is on in terms of foreign policy? Yeah. He just left the NATO summit. Um, there's a lot of stuff going on with that. He spoke last week with Fareed Zakaria on CNN. That was a great interview. Um, he said there was a long way to go here on the Saudi-Israeli deal. But I think this would be an enormous diplomatic and foreign policy achievement. Uh, I, I think not just enormous, but historic, obviously. Um, the article also says that Biden uh, is pushing forward on other fronts to make this happen. I'm sure these are just the ones we know about in public, but pressing the Lebanese government and military to take steps to dismantle Hezbollah, a Hezbollah outpost, I should say, that was established right on the uh, Israeli-Lebanon border. Um, and then the other thing from that interview that I wanted to just sort of mention in this context, Richard, was when President Biden was sort of asked about some carrots for Saudi Arabia to warm up to Israel. He said, quote, quite frankly, I don't think they have much of a problem with Israel. Um, it, it was kind of a, I mean, you don't really get a lot of candor like that on issues, you know, foreign yeah. policy issues, especially. So interesting story here. Yeah. Fighting Joe Biden just left the NATO confab and laid into Russia. And, uh, and um, yeah, I, I, I think, you know, I think the world, I think certainly the perceptions of the U.S. in terms of foreign policy globally have significantly improved under Joe Biden because it seems to be a coherent, responsible, well-communicated policy or policies. I think he's, I, I think he's sneakily been a good president. And uh, that's just my opinion. I agree. Um, you know, and, and particularly a, 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 a calming and um, calming element at a very difficult time domestically and a very, you know, unsettled time globally. So it's an interesting time. Now, I will say this on this yellow, which is very unusual because we do our yellows and we have this is, you know, we go, all right, what about this? What about this? And I will yep. do these six. And then we each, you know, research. Mm -hmm. I have zero notes after this one. <laughs> why? <laughs> why is that just because it's so complicated and, and involving as an issue or just? 
I just think it's 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 uh it's it's premature it's unlikely it's fascinating for a lot of reasons it's hard to get into so you're right joe biden president biden said this is you know this is not likely to happen soon the saudis if you probably ask them are getting what they want from israel i mean i think ultimately they can see and princess rima spoke about this they can see an israel integrated in the region and and with all the economic and commercial benefits of that um i don't think they're averse to that at all uh, you know they're in no hurry to make you know, to to normalize relations is with Netanyahu led Israel, um, and I think they're in no, no hurry in general. They also realize that the, what they want, which is a more certain security relationship with the U.S. as well as uh, sort of a green light and participation to develop their nuclear program, including enrichment, which is what they want. Um, it, None of the, neither of those, possibly, certainly the security agreement is going to be ratified in the U.S. Congress. So while they like to have the discussion, you know, they've realized they can't rely on a president's commitment because it changes from president to president, and sometimes it changes within a president's administration. You know, so their, their issue is, their concern is not that the U.S. is capable of protecting their interests in the region and their security in the region is their their concern is that there's a willingness to do so and yes they'd like to get it ratified and make it a legal treaty um but you know even israel doesn't have one of these and i don't think they expect they get one i think what they have to love is the whole tenor and nature and direction of the conversation since joe biden was elected and we know that was a very difficult, rocky relationship. Joe Biden had made some comments, campaign era comments that were unappreciated. Um, <clears throat> Saudi Arabia was already, you know, a little uh, certainly uncertain about where the U.S. was headed. So I think it's it's it, there's ser- clearly a lot of communication. There seems to be an aligning of interests. There seems to be a recognition that the relationship has to be has changed and evolved, and some, it seems to be a more adult conversation at the moment if that's a term, um, but the Saudis are in no hurry. They're getting what they want from Israel. They're certainly are not going to do anything lightly with regard to normalization that doesn't include, you know, application of the Arab peace initiative in the occupied territories because they have a responsibility to the Islamic world and the Arab world. And that is like no one else. And they take it seriously. So, all these conversations, we've talked about it, you know, are typically pushed by the Israeli side, thinking they can, you know, move this along and it'd be good, you know, it'd be a good win. Um, but, you know, the carrot out there for the Saudis is uh, you normalize with Israel and you get, you know, tremendous goodwill from the U.S. Um, it's not sufficient. Yep. It's got to be more, it's got to be harder. It's got to be more, you know, more tangible, and they're just not giving this way for good PR. They're, they're you know, it, it will, it would have to be something very significant that furthers Saudi Arabia's domestic, regional, and global interests. So, so I guess it, you know, obviously I have a lot of a lot of thoughts on the topic, but I don't run any notes on it because I, you know, it can go in any direction. I don't think it's going anywhere right now. 
Yeah, are you sure you don't have notes, Richard? Because uh, that was a really good <laughs> <Yeah>. response. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, I, I completely agree. It was very thoughtful, and uh, I think I think you're spot on. And as you were saying that, I was sort of thinking, well, no one really saw the Iran deal coming, the Saudi Iran deal, but there was a, there were there were a lot of carrots for Saudi Arabia to start going down that path. It actually did make a lot of sense. It just seemed impossible. This seems impossible, and for Saudi Arabia, it does not seem to make a lot of sense right now if they're not going to get much out of it. So I, I, I think those are great points, Richard. Yeah. And, and I mean, a, the big opportunity is on a nuclear and, and Saudi Arabia would like us involved, like us to sign off, but they're not going to give up the enrichment capability. I mean, I mean, their point is, look, your cat's already out of the bag. Israel has nuclear weapons and enriches. Um, in the agreement with Iran, there was a sunset clause that would have allowed them to move along that path too. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're, they don't, uh, the UAE so did, did a gold standard where there's no enrichment at all. Um, but, you know, they just want to have the discussion because they think the, um, you know, two things. One, they think nuclear capability would be, you know, significant to their efforts to, um, to decarbonize their economy and, and move to non you know, fossil fuel energy. And, you know, they also feel like they have significant uranium deposits and that they can be, a, you know, they can, they should be allowed to move along this enrichment path and, and become a player in that part of that field. And also, as they've stated quite loudly and just, you know, clearly, you know, if Iran enriches and gets the bomb, they feel they have the right to do it themselves. So that's a sticky one. It's all a sticky one. They're all yeah. sticky. Yep. They're all difficult. Otherwise, nice. they'd you just do it. You know, or they'd be, yeah. they'd be like, okay, but yeah. But, but the nice yeah. thing is, is these are all ongoing conversations. Yep. I mean, 18 months ago, there was Zippo going on. It was a lot of contention, a lot of a very antagonistic relationship. And by that, I mean, there was, there's, you know, the institutional relationships were in place and those conversations are going, but I'm talking at the very top. And so this is, you know, on the, just on the basis of what's being discussed and things are being discussed, it's a positive thing. The likelihood of it in the near term, not high. Right. And there's also a lot of things that make you say, hmm, like, you know, uh, Ambassador <laughs> Ratney for, formerly was uh, a high ranking uh, State Department official in Israel. You know, I mean, there's a, there's like a lot of stuff like that where you can kind of see it to kind of just to highlight your point, it just sees you see it sort of in a good spot now. But as far it as is, July 13th being the day, I don't, maybe yeah, yeah. maybe not. But I mean, you know, so we should we should know this. Didn't they just didn't we just name an envoy to promote uh, Abraham Accords? We should we know this. We should. And we should. good, good, good on it. Abraham Accords are, 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 are a positive thing. Yeah. Um, it's just Saudi Arabia is a whole different animal. Yeah. Definitely. Richard, yellow number two. Saudi Arabia recently participated in the virtual ministerial meeting announcing the launch of the global coalition to address synthetic drug threats. According to the White House website, the coalition aims to, quote, expedite actions against illegal synthetic drugs, unquote. It will, quote, employ coordinated strategies to prevent illicit drug production, identify emerging drug threats, disrupt trafficking, combat illicit financial activities, and address the impacts on public safety and public health, end quote. Following 
establishment of the global coalition, the United States will initiate consultations with participating countries to establish priority actions and measures to confront synthetic drugs. Partners will collaborate in working groups to offer new solutions, drive national action, and advance combating synthetic drugs as a policy priority. That was a long one, sorry. No, it's all good. What's a synthetic drug? Like fentanyl. Okay. Uh, ox, uh, you know, um also oh, like the, like okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, Captagon. Okay. You know, cool. I guess things like cot and weed and and that sort of thing are organic. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. A couple <laughs> things. Anyway, <laughs> this just prompted a very odd thought. The reason you know I suggested this, and you said you you know we were all good with this. I just like it when there's global coalitions and Saudi Arabia is part of it. But also, is it a bit of you know it's 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 a it's a savvy move. You know, Saudi Arabia is dealing with a significant you know. Uh, issue with captagon and um you know amphetamines uh this is a t- this is something that i did not know did you know in the u.s synthetic drugs are the number one kill over americans aged 18 to 49 mm. nearly 110,000 americans died last year of a drug overdose wow two-thirds of those deaths involve synthetic opioids so and causing nearly 1.5 trillion in, in in an economic toll in terms of health and and judicial system and that sort of thing. Um, wow, it's stunning. So you know, it's it's interesting. There's a global coalition here, and um, and it's also, you know, when you share your sorrows, get together and try and work on things that are you know plaguing all of us. It's another another you know avenue to get closer and and be on the same page always a positive yeah Try, trying to combat a big negative yeah and the fact that the us and saudi arabia are going to coordinate a little bit on this is good because the us has been fighting the drug trade for 6 decades in a pretty sophisticated way so yeah. to have their yeah. assistance for saudi arabia is helpful because i mean i think now like in saudi arabia I guess my question about synthetic drugs, I was like, aren't all drugs, except for like one or two, just, you know, basically synthesized or created somehow. But I mean, this is like things like meth and, you know, uh, Captagon. Both of those drugs, Richard, as you know, are starting to take off in Saudi Arabia, unfortunately, um, as you know, for recreational use. And it's a serious problem. Both of those drugs are very dangerous. Like you just mentioned, they are already here in the United States and already killing 100,000 people a year. But I mean, that's, Saudi Arabia does not want to have that have it reach that level. So there, you can really see in the media the the reports of stepping up arrests and kind of publicizing the punishment that you will receive for doing this type of trade. Yeah, yeah. and as listeners to the nine six six know, I mean, we did a we did a segment on Captagon, and Syria is essentially a narco state. You know, and dealing with that, you know, that was a major motivation. You know, one element of trying to bring them in from the cold to the Arab League. You know, it's you got to deal with this and and you're right tapping into the networks and the intelligence systems and the and the, and uh you know understanding financial activities that the US has gained over the years is a bonus for the Saudi Arabia yep um yellow number 3 pga tour says saudi wealth fund could put at least 1 billion into golf deal 
A PGA Tour executive told Congress on Tuesday that Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund could invest more than $1 billion in, in an ambitious alliance that stands to reshape professional golf if it withstands scrutiny in Washington and a wellspring of suspicion and outrage over the Saudis' widening role in a global sport. Appearing before senators who questions who's uh, appearing before senators, the tour's chief operating officer, Ron Price, said that the size of a cash, inf cash infusion from the wealth fund into a planned for-profit company was not final, but he acknowledged that discussions, quote unquote, that could ultimately result in investment north of $1 billion, according to the New York Times. Richard, two things on this. First, $1 billion, like maybe I'm jaded. Like you talk about the PIF, you talk about sports investing. $1 billion does not seem like that much money. The Washington commanders are about to sell for $6 billion. It's a comparison we made two weeks ago. When we spoke with uh, Simon Chadwick. Just phenomenal discussion. We All of our conversations with all of our guests are great. <laughs> but this one was uh, especially excellent because he is quoted almost daily in a major market newspaper on yeah. this subject. So to have it have him join us right in the middle of all of that was an honor and was really cool. But I mean, this just doesn't seem like that much money that everyone should be sort of freaking out over uh, because this is not that much money in the world of sports globally. So that's just one thought. I mean, I know that golf is not as big as the NFL, but it just seems like not that much money. And then the second thing uh, that I thought was interesting here, Richard, is, you know, like Capitol Hill never misses a chance to grandstand and to take an issue and say, look, we're going to draw attention. to it." That's their job. That's their role is to say, well, we're going to look at it. We're going to we're going to grill these guys. That was a contentious conversation they had uh, on the Hill. I don't know if you saw much of it, but it was kind of a little uncomfortable to watch. Just very, very kind of contentious. But, you know. A lot of uh, this, this is classic Capitol Hill. It's not a, sort of making a big deal out of this so that it forwards the conversation. But um, yeah, just just sort of thought like, you know, is this after this deal is done? Are people going to boycott the PGA? And and like, is that a th is that what would they be worried about that? I don't think so. I mean, there's now only one game in town, so there there could be other results that negatively affect the PIF or the PGA, they may get taxed or, you know, they, there may be more hearings, but like, are people going to be like, well, the Saudis have invested in PGA. I'm not going to watch golf anymore. It doesn't seem like that would be the case to me, but you know, maybe. Yeah. This is another thing we've done, uh, covered a lot and we've done a, a number of segments on and, and um, I think I did a rant on, on how silly it is when people say that, you know, that live bought the PGA. I mean, it's just ridiculous. And you see this in the comments of PGA executives going up before Congress saying, look, this is a framework agreement. We have complete control. And, you know, and it is, by the way, they talk about a framework agreement, so it may still not get done, but, you know, it, it, explicit throughout is uh, heck no, we have complete control PGA. You know, the Saudis have bought into investment and marketing opportunities. And, um, you know, the, the perhaps a bigger concern is the part Department of Justice looking into a, a monopoly and anti-collusion, anti you know, charges. You know, it, it, there's a lot of memos out there. And when, when Liv is saying, okay, we won't recruit and we won't do this and that, you know, people will want to say collusion. Um, it will be interesting if it goes through. 
I would like to see it go through. I think everyone would like to see it go through and, and a resolution of the matter. I mean, nobody wants this sort of uh, neither nor situation with live and PGA and DP golf to continue. Um, I think the, you know, all the executives that got together, you saw Romain and, and uh, Monaghan and all those people, you know, there was a compelling reason to get this agreement. Obviously it had some PR issues and they have difficulties within their own PGA because they couldn't communicate it. Uh, and of course, there's, a, you know, the, 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 everybody, you know, significant numbers of similar percentage of the U.S. have a bad, you know, a bad uh, image of Saudi Arabia. So it's all wrapped up in a lot of things. You're right. You know, I'm always a little, you know, when Congress gets on its bandstand, um, you know, the, so anyway, I, I, you know, they went through it. They did it. We'll see what happens. My point all along is a good deal for PGA. And if you're concerned about the PGA, let it go through. You know, if you're concerned about collusion and monopoly, uh, you know, maybe you can pursue that avenue. But certainly, you know, golf as we know it is not done. It's probably significantly enhanced. Richard, we do a lot of talk about the PGA and golf on this program. We don't do enough playing of golf. We this should, is true. We should move towards the playing more. <laughs> I, I'm with you 100%. <laughs> Richard Yella, number four. Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Environment, Water, and Agriculture has been installing 1,350 kilometers of water pipes across the capital city as part of the Green Riyadh program, the official Saudi press agency reported. This comes as part of its efforts to carry 1.7 million cubic meters of treated water daily to irrigate 7.5 million trees in the city. The aim is to achieve sustainable green spaces for the Green Riyadh projects and other development projects in the city, the report said. The diameter of the primary pipes range from 1.2 to 2.4 meters. Secondary networks reach all Riyadh neighborhoods. This is cool. It is cool. And there's not much to add here. I just think it's, I mean, it's important to um, acknowledge and recognize these touchstones along the way towards achieving an, a goal. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't plant 7.5 million trees or ultimately many more than that and somehow not water them. You know, in order to do that, you have to put in, you know, <laughs> you know, and they're going to put in more, you know, put in 13, you know, 13,000 kilometers of water pipes. I mean, this is a huge project just to sustain this. And, and you know, the goal is to increase green coverage of Riyadh to 9.1%, which I guess just in, in the article. So this is a per capita share of green spaces from 1.7 square meters to 28 square meters, 16 times its current level. So they're really trying to make a difference here. Um, but again, you can't do that. And it's also a good use, you know, it's good use of treated water. Yeah. So these are all positive things. And it's it's one of those steps that are not sexy, putting a bunch of pipes in the ground. I mean, I didn't see the headline for that. Uh, but it's critical if you want a greener and, uh, you know, greener Riyadh or greener anything and, and have a better living environment and improve quality of life. So it's a good one. And you can see it, Richard, um, in Riyadh. You were just there. It's you can see the trees going up. I mean, seven point five million trees. You kind of can't miss that. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, it's cool. I mean, you can you can really see them going neighborhood by neighborhood and, and yeah. on major thoroughfares as well, putting these trees up. And so you're right. I just kind of giggle because you're like, you can't have these trees, but have no water to give them. And so it, <laughs> it does make sense. It's, it's cool. I mean, that's you know, so 
Yeah, good story. And and, and fo- also file this under another thing that sounded a little bit ambitious at first, the the number yeah. of trees they wanted to plant and that they wanted to turn Riyadh into a green space and King Salman Park and all this stuff. And then, you know, eight months later, you have, hey, we're putting in all these pipes going all over to every neighborhood to water these trees. You're like, oh, yeah, that's right. That's, you guys are doing it. So, you know, good on them. <laughs> Yellen number five, Saudi Arabia's public investment fund reported a loss in investment activities of about $11 billion last year compared to a profit of $19 billion in 2021 as global market sank. Total assets of the PF, PIF, as the fund is known, rose to about $778 billion from $675 billion. Yeah, Richard, this um, so it's likely that we will see a bounce back again in 2023. We're already halfway through the year. A theme we've mentioned several times actually on the show, but I mean, so that this is for 2022. So six months in, and we've kind of seen global markets trend back up. So we can kind of expect that to happen for the PIF this year, maybe. Um, This is also not really attached to the investments that has been making in sports that are generating all the headlines. It's essentially just markets and all of the positions they've taken in markets have gone down in 2022. Um, so I think we'll probably experience, see that bounce back in 2023. Um, yeah, I mean, stocks go up and stocks go down, you know? So it's uh, it's interesting. That's a lot of money. We had uh, one of the nice things, we love feedback. And, you know, uh, we had this, this was one of our featured thing on Tuesday, today, on Tuesday. This week, and our good friend Amr Khashoggi, who's been on the show, and we'll have him on again, is awesome. Uh, sent me a note. So this is he's he's checking the Sustig review every day, like thousands of others. Um, and he said, "Oh, by the way, everybody got got bombed last year in terms of sovereign wealth funds." And he pointed out, he said, "You know, the Singapore fund was down, uh, Temesek was down, uh, significant amount." But the one that really got the Norway's one point three trillion dollar sovereign wealth fund lost one hundred and sixty four billion in twenty twenty two. Wow! I mean, the market in general was really impacted by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, inflation, rising interest rates. It was, um, you know, all sectors of the equity market, bonds and stocks were all showing negative returns. There was nowhere to go. I mean, except the, of energy, but it was, it just crushed global, I mean, so- sovereign wealth funds everywhere. Um, what I did think was interesting about this, and, and it was something you've, I'm sure you've seen close up, is uh, it seemed to spark a move into, you know, you, you're getting a larger percentage of, of sovereign wealth funds um, and institutional funds that are, are, allocating funds to hedge funds and uh, private credit and that sort of thing, just to try and mix it up, you know, because the year was so bad with nowhere to go in stocks or bonds, you know, they're trying to find other ways to, to, to move it along and try and get some return. So yeah, 2022 was bad for everybody, including the PIF. Yep. And we also got the, an update Richard on the, the figures. So they now have 778 billion, as you noted, that keeps going up. So that's a lot. Of well, money. yeah. And they, you know, they get, they, they get inflows from, from mm-hmm. Ramco and that sort of thing. So yep. it, it is, it's, it's making progress. Um, I guess the fund currently owns 79 companies. Uh, 
you know, at, you know, with total assets to about seven hundred seven eight billion, as you mentioned. Um, so you know, and it's up to its port, uh, its portfolio in the U.S. is thirty five point six billion. So, but as, as we know, all these things change. But yeah, twenty twenty two rocked sovereign wealth funds and other in- investment vehicles. Mm-hmm. Richard Yellow number six. Saudi Arabia's Neom Green Hydrogen Project is formally under construction and is expected to be completed by 2026, the end of 2026. Aqua Power said in a statement to the Saudi Stock Exchange, the Tadawal on Thursday, the company's affiliate Neom Green Hydrogen Company, NGHC, issued a full award notice for the engineering, procurement, and construction contractor, which has been approved, Aqua added. This is, uh, I guess they got all the finances in order earlier in the year, in March and mm-hmm. May, maybe, you know, so they got, um, you know, 8.4 billion in financing, 23 banks and investment firms. So they got the money in order. They've obviously, Aqua is the lead contractor. I think Larson and Tubro, which is an Indian company, is going to come in and work underneath them. Um, all this is going on Oxagon, which I think is interesting, you know, um, you 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 try and find out where things are going to end up and what their what their niche will be, what their primary thing. But you know this is going to be gone cited on Oxygon. The hero in all this, if you ask me, is Air Products. Um, Air Products, which is a, and we should give them more love. This is a U.S. firm founded in 1940 in Detroit, now headquartered in Pennsylvania. Thirteen billion dollar annual revenue. By the way, the chairman. President, Chief uh, Chief Executive Officer, Officer Saifi Gassimi, I'm sure I didn't pronounce that correctly, uh, was born in Iran. Um, and ah, I, I say that because it's interesting how it all goes on. But 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 the reason they're the hero is here. So you can do all this. You can invest all this money. The issue is offtake. Who's going to buy it? And so many uh, hydrogen projects globally are in theory or moving ahead, but they don't have an offtake agreement. And Air Products is the, what's really made this possible. And essentially, you know, that's what the the CEO of Neom Green Hydrogen Company has said is that Air Products has signed a thirty year offtake agreement, so they have a customer now. So there's reasons to go ahead with this. Um, and the other cool thing of this is we know is the extraordinary amounts of renewable energy that's going to be put in place to make this possible. We're talking 2.2 gigs of, of renewable energy, um, over 5.6 million solar panels will be put in place to power this, which is the only reason you can call it green energy, green hydrogen, obviously, because it's, you know, with its source of energy. Um, so anyway, we should probably see if we can get air products on the show because, I mean, they're doing some good stuff. And it's important, too, because we'll go back to the beginning. There's the discussion of there's a Saudi Aramco model. By that, because the U.S. was so deeply involved with the development of the petroleum industry in Saudi Arabia, it ended up binding the countries together in many important tangible and intangible ways. Mm-hmm. a long-term capital intensive uh, project that brought Saudis and Americans together. There are people who are, you know, saying this is what would happen if we were to go fall in and engage on the nuclear front. Again, another long-term capital intensive partnership 
ties countries closer together. You know, uh, Air Products is doing this with hydrogen in in Neom. Important, important, you know, long-term U.S.-Saudi partnership. Um, so I think maybe it should get more love than it does. I agree. And I agree with it being the hero as well, Richard. We should get somebody from Air Products on to talk about it, especially now that it's all underway. So, you know, they can sort of talk about how, well, give us some context on what's happening now that it's a done deal and the ink is dry. Yeah. Usually it's sensitive around that. So, yes. Um, join us, Air Products executive. <laughs> um, Richard, let's uh, let's put a bow on it, huh? This, put this a bow was a really, on it. This, this was a really good one for 94. We are only six away, by the way, from Tri our centennial. Tri triple digits. That's right. I think, right. as we said, you know, as we talked about, you know, if this were, if this were a, a sitcom, some people might think it is, don't you get syndicated at 100? But I think that's the case. I think we just keep plugging along, trying to make it big. Or we will take a lucid which uh which lucid. didn't have a good uh uh earnings reporting recently but um <clears throat> we'll still take one they're only making 1400 a quarter but <laughs> one of those can go to richard one of them can go to me and you know we'll take that as a, a centennial gift so anyway uh Absolutely. good stuff richard thank you see you next week thank you man